Amen. You got your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. The title of this morning's message is Like a Good Neighbor. Sounds familiar, huh? Part of our Words in Red series this morning, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so very much. We thank you for your word, and we don't take it for granted, God, that it, we can come here on a Sunday morning, that we can read your word, that we can apply it to our lives, God, that uh, it is so very plainly given to us, and we thank you for the privilege of your word, that it would come into our hearts, God, change us, convict us, cause us to repent, God, and, and cause us to be transformed into your image, to be filled in, with your love, not just in religion or tradition, but, God, to know you personally, because your love has changed us. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be just like your Son, Jesus Christ. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. In 1968, a television show hosted by a Presbyterian minister aired. And the goal was to promote good self-esteem, self-control, diversity, patience, and persistence. The Reverend Fred Rogers hated what he saw on TV, and so he wanted to promote some wholesome and some nurturing broadcasting. And for 33 years, the theme of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was, Won't You Be My Neighbor? How many people watched that? Okay, amen. A lot of you, you probably, I, ra- I was raised up on it, Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, all that. Um, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Won't You Be My Neighbor? The children of Israel were united as a community under God's covenant. They were one people. And to sin against your neighbor was to sin against the covenant of God. They could not, uh, they were commanded for things like don't covet your neighbor's wife or your, his property, not to steal from your neighbor or lie or gossip about your neighbor, defraud, don't hate, don't keep a grudge, don't oppress your neighbor. Don't withhold charity from your neighbor. It even included the poor, so much so that when you would go to cultivate your fields or take in your gardens like we have maybe here, that you would leave the corners of your garden or your field for the poor because the poor was your neighbor. And we find in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, this. A lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? And how does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify Himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, the Jews had a narrow definition of the word neighbor. It only included people that was in the Jewish faith. Even if you live next to a Gentile or you live next to a Samaritan, they were not considered your neighbor. It was only people who were just like you. And this man, he wants to define the boundary of love. He wants to ask Jesus, how much... 
do I love and where does it stop? Where, does the line, where can I draw the line with loving other people? So who is my neighbor? And I love what Jesus had asked him. He said, how does the Bible read to you? What does Scripture say to you when you read it? And that's our question to us today. What does the Bible say, and what does it say to you? Sometimes we can read all the Scripture in the world, but if we don't let it apply to our life and say, how does my life measure up against what God's Word says? Well, this guy had his own definition, but Jesus is saying, what's God's definition? What's God's definition of forgiveness? What's God's definition of patience? What's God's definition of marriage or self-control? What's God's definition of love? That's what we're going to talk about today. Who is our neighbor, and how do we love them? You know, we know the Sunday school answer. I was thinking about this today. I'm like, ah, oh, God, I don't... You know, we're talking about love and loving your neighbor. It's like something we do in kids' church from the very beginning, and all of us are going to say, yes, we're supposed to love everybody in the world, right? We know the answer before I've even preached the sermon, so we can go home, come back at five for hot dogs and hamburgers, right? I mean, we, we kind of know that. But let's put it in a little bit more personal touch. How are we supposed to, supposed to love that irritating coworker? How are you supposed to love that person? How are you supposed to love that inconsiderate shopper that pushes you out of way and jumps in line in front of you? Happens a lot, doesn't it? How are you supposed to love that incompetent food service worker that always gets your order wrong? How are you supposed to love the illegal immigrant, the drug addict, the prostitute, the repeat offender, the murderer, or even closer? How are you supposed to love that unspiritual Baptist or perhaps that prejudiced Pentecostal? How are you supposed to love the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness? How are you supposed to love the Muslim? We can go on to the adulterer, the homosexual, even the pedophile. How are you supposed to love people? And what does it look like? What does God's Word say, and how do you read it? You see, God, with His power, He gave all to save all. And with whatever power we have, we're supposed to give all to serve all. I'll say it again. With what power God had, he gave all to save all. And so, therefore, whatever power we have, we're supposed to give all to serve all. And let's look what Jesus says, talking about the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. What does the Bible say, and how does it read to you? So here's the story. And we just watched this video of it. Jesus replied, And a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him. And he went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, and he poured oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor? to the man who fell in the robber's hands. And the lawyer said, The one who showed mercy. 
towards him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So this man, he was driving, not driving, he was walking between Jerusalem and Jericho. They're parallel in Israel. One's near the Jordan River, one's in the middle. And it's about a 19-mile stretch. If you've ever been there, there's nothing but desert and plateaus and uh, ravines. It's just a barren, desolate place. And uh, as it is known now and as it was known then, it was a place of thieves and robbers and and not a good place to go. We see the town of Jericho was a city of priests and Levites. And these priests and these Levites had temple duties. And so they would travel this road, and they were, in a sense, on their way to and from church, if we would put it in today's perspective. And the little background is that the Samaritan, the Samaritan was known as a heathen to the Jew. It was, he was considered a devil or a dog because he was a half-Jew and half-pagan. His people had intermarried in the time of the exile. And so they lived just north of, of uh, Judea in, a, in an area called Samaria. They had their own capital. They had their own way of worshiping God. They had their own temple. And they even had their own version of the Old Testament that was considered heretical. So if you really want to kind of put some parallels with the Samaritans, it's kind of like today if we as fundamental Christians would compare ourselves to the Mormon. They have a different, they they might say they're the same thing. They might say they believe in the same God, but their way of worshiping is different. Their true doctrine is very much so different, and their scripture is completely different than ours. They are not the same thing, and so therefore we wouldn't fellowship with them and worship with them in the same way. That's the way the Jews considered the Samaritans, and they, even more so, they were so prejudiced against them. And so that's where we have this background, and Jesus, knowing this, sets up this parable. Some people believe this was a true story that they would have known about, perhaps something that would have been in the news uh, that week. But uh, we look here, and we see that there is pride and prejudice. Pride and prejudice. Not talking about the movie. And in these people, there was pride and there was prejudice. It says that the priest and the Levite saw him and then crossed the other side of the street. Now, let's be honest. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many people, now we don't have a whole lot of homeless people here in LaSalle Parish, obviously, but how many people have ever saw someone who had a need or you knew they're going to hit you up for money? Maybe it's that family member and you kind of avoided them, right? Let's be honest. Yeah, I've done it. I'll be honest. How many people, uh, when we see something, we so, man, they're going to ask me, I just know it. I know as soon as I see them, they're going to ask me if they can borrow my truck. I heard they were moving. And I'm just going to pretend like my wife's got the truck today. Or whatever. There's, that's just human nature. I don't know. I know you're, you're all perfect. But I, myself, can be that way sometimes. It's like I, I know it's going to cost me something if I meet that person today or if I see them. And so that's where these people were. Despite all of their worship services, they were churchy. They hadn't learned what it was really all about, and all of the travels and all of the trips to go worship in the temple, going from Jerusalem to Jericho, doing all the religious rituals, they hadn't really learned what it was really all about. What's church really all about? What's going to church every week really all about? What's being a part of a Bible study really all about? These people were called to be God's kingdom of priests, the light of the world, and yet they were prejudiced. Not only were they just prejudiced against the Gentiles and the Samaritans, but here was one of their very own, another Jew in the ditch, 
half naked, robbed, broke, beaten, probably going to die. And yet they pass by. They pass by one of their very own. One author talks about it this way, is that in all of their religion, their neighborhood was never changed. Not only, uh, if you can look at some great movements of God here in America, there's some in uh, Chicago, there's a large Assemblies of God church in Chicago that's doing such a great work in downtown Chicago that the crime rate has just uh, ridiculously lowered, so much so that the police department and all of them are, are talking with the church to say, how can we help you do what you're doing because what you're doing is bettering our city? Think about it. On all their church, there were still robbers on the street. There were still people getting killed. In all their church, they had not changed their heart of compassion for even their very own. What's the point of all their church going? What's the point of all their religion? What's the point of all their belief system and memorizing the law when they forget Hosea chapter 6, verse 6? When God said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, knowing me instead of just giving offerings to me. See, in all their religious works, it wasn't working. Sometimes we, people will go to church all the time. We'll devote all the right resources. We'll devote all the right things. We'll try to line everything out, and we'll find that it's still not working. Going to church doesn't just work. It's about having the heart of God and knowing Him. That's what works. And these people were churchy. You know, you can't love God with all of your heart and hate your neighbor with a piece of it. There can't, you can't say, I love God with everything inside of me, but I'm going to hold on to that one prejudice for people who, who, who are on welfare. I can't say, I love God with all of my heart and say, I'm going to love those people, but those people who do this, they, they knew they, what they were doing, and they should know better, right? Or, I'm going to love God with all of my heart, but you know, those Muslims or those illegal immigrants or those people who shouldn't, da, 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 da. let's fill in all the blanks, those homosexuals, those all, the, all the things that we can label people with. God, what does God's word say? And how does it read to you? That's what Jesus is saying. How does God's word read? And what does it say to you? Do we love God with all of our heart and love our neighbors as ourselves? Is there any part of us like Jesus chastised these Pharisees in Matthew 23 for obeying the most tiniest bits of the law, but neglecting the most important things, justice, mercy, and faith. I think sometimes it's so very easy for those of us, myself included, I've raised in church. My parents raised me under the pew. I mean, I had the Hot Wheels and the crackers and all that. I mean, we didn't miss a service. And it's so very easy for us, those who are going to church, to miss the bigger picture. What is it all about? Why do we come week after week? Do we lose sight in all of our workings to work for God and serve God and please God? Do we miss His heart? Because Jesus is calling us to true religion. And He says, how do the Scriptures read to you? What do you see? Does it change you? And does it change, more importantly, the world around you? Because then no, we know it's fruitful. You see, it wasn't changing the world around them. What's the point of it if it doesn't change? What's the point of coming to church and reading our Bibles and praying and, and, and seeing a nice facility and, and giving more money to our kids and our youth if it doesn't change our families? 
if it doesn't change our community, if it doesn't change our state or our nation or even people around the world, if it's not changing lives, then what is it for? Is it all about serve me? Or is it serve him and serve others? You see, holiness on the inside cannot help but be fruitful on the outside. True holiness on the inside is compelled by the fruitful Holy Spirit. If I have the Holy Spirit residing in me, He is naturally fruitful. And if He is rooted deep and down and planting the seed of God in my heart, it will naturally produce outward abundant fruitfulness, one of those fruits being love. What holy and life-giving effect do we, do you and your family have on your neighborhood? Do I have on my neighborhood. Now, some of us, we might not have a neighborhood where we live. Uh, some cows and some chickens and stuff like that, right? You have, might have to go drive a little ways to find a neighbor you're going to have a uh, holy fellowship with. But seriously, what effect, what life-giving, holy effect, fruitful effect do we as a body of believers that we gather here together? This is our home church. This is where we call home. What effect do we have on our neighborhood? Is there any pride and prejudice in our church going? Do we justify our beliefs and use Scripture sometimes to do it? But Jesus says, what does Scripture say? I'm praying today for myself that we would look at Scripture today, allow it to convict us. If there's any part of my heart that is not filled with the love of God, they would cause me to repent, but then it would also cause me to seek after God and be in His presence and allow His Holy Spirit to transform me from the inside out, to convict, to repent, and to transform. I want to see a need. Talking about seeing a need, the priest and the Levite, they pretended they didn't see this man. Yet the Bible clearly says they saw him and crossed the street. No doubt they had their excuses, things like this. Maybe it's not safe to linger here. The robbers just got this guy. Maybe they're out there watching. If I stop, maybe it's a trap. Could have been thinking something rational that way. Maybe they're thinking he's not a person that would help me. That's not the kind of guy. I know him. I know what he does. I know who he is. I know what he's like. He wouldn't help me if I was in his situation. Maybe they were thinking perhaps it was his own fault. Sometimes you got to sleep in the bed, you know, that you've made. You know, maybe it's his own fault. Or perhaps it's like, you know, I've got, I'm on my way to, I'm late. Somebody else will stop. Surely somebody else will do this. Surely somebody else will reach our kids and youth. Somebody else, surely somebody else better than me will participate in our Sunday school. Surely somebody else will volunteer their time at the nursing home. Surely somebody else will give to that missions project. Surely somebody else We'll reach the lost around us. Somebody else. We can't do it all by ourselves. Somebody else. Those churches, they got their part. But what is God calling us to do? What do we see around us? You know, we can ask, man, how can a priest, on his way to temple, pass by a guy half dead? It would be like us, on our way to church this morning, seeing someone have a car accident on the side of the road, and just keep on driving. And we're thinking, who does that? I know every single one of us in this place. I, I believe, I, I know you love Jesus enough that if you saw a car accident on your way to church this morning, wouldn't you stop? Check them out? 
I was thinking about this, and I'm like, God, how does that really apply to us? Because I know, man, we've got a loving, grace-filled church, probably one of the most grace-filled churches in our parish. I mean, I just believe that. We, there's a great group of, of love, loving believers in this place. But then the Lord began to speak to me and began to ask this question. If we can ask, how can a priest on his way to temple ignore a manic need? But can we ask, how can a church that sees Jesus Christ is coming soon not urgently pursue a lost and dying world that's destined to hell? Which is worse? A car accident that we know could be life or death that we would stop for, but when we see the lost around us, that there are people who are destined to an eternity of hell, and we pass them by. I've got things I'm doing. Surely somebody else will minister to that person. Surely somebody else will talk to that person before they die. Surely there's other people more gifted, more qualified than me. Perhaps I'm not even, I'm crossing the other side of the street while people are dying and going to hell. I believe that's what God is speaking to us to this morning. Not in a chastising way, but in a compelling way of his love. Now, there's a thing I've studied in psychology called the bystander effect. It came out in the 1960s. Uh, it's been a part of humanity forever, as, as long as we can think, but it really has gotten popular about what happens when a crowd comes together in an emergency. There becomes a delusion or a, a watering down of responsibility. Uh, basically, uh, sometimes we look to other people to act before we act. Sometimes there's natural leaders that will step up in the gap, but oftentimes we, we, we find these weird social events. One, one case... Uh, in 2010, there was a man named Hugo Alfredo. He was a homeless immigrant, and he was stabbed to death in New York City after he came to the aid of a woman who was being attacked and trying to be robbed. And he jumped in the way, and, let the, and the woman got away, but the man had stabbed him. And for 90 minutes, over an hour, he was on the sidewalk before EMS arrived. And during that time, at least 25 people walked by him and offered no assistance because he was homeless. He looked homeless. No one checked on him. They're bleeding to death. He finally succumbed to his injuries. One person even rolled him over. Another person even took a picture with his camera phone and kept on walking. True story. Another story was a story of a young lady in the 1960s named Kitty Genovese. She was in an apartment complex where all the, there was a courtyard in the middle. And uh, she was being attacked and stabbed multiple times, screaming at the top of her lungs. And the neighbors would hear in their kitchens and uh, being outside. And they would, everybody wondered what was going on. And everybody heard it. But no one took action. No one for, for some time called the authorities. Most people thought, well, somebody else, I don't really know what's going on. I'm not involved. Maybe there's a thing, something I don't want to get involved in. Maybe somebody else, I'm surely somebody else called 911 already. And it just became this thing where no one took action, and it became a huge national case. I wonder today if the world is not so much similar to those cases. As we look at ourselves, the church, we see the cries of help. We hear the people who are broken, their lives are falling apart. We see all the... Uh, 
uh, the devil is coming to steal, kill, and destroy marriages after marriage. He's coming to steal, kill, and destroy teenagers in rebellion and suicide. And we see all these people broken and screaming for help. We see all of the poor. We see all of the homeless. We see all those things, and we just get overwhelmed and say, well, surely, God, it's not my place. Surely, that's not my responsibility. But maybe, you know, it's the corporate churches. Uh, you know, somebody in the corporate church, there's, there's people doing things about those things. And then there's a, a, a failure of responsibility for the individual. We get lost in the crowd, and we want to step back into the crowd and say, God, the, uh, you know, who am I? What do I have to do? What can I do? I don't have the power. I don't have the, I'm not in charge. I don't know about that situation. And meanwhile, our world dies and goes to hell. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? And John says, Little children, let us not just love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. That is in action and in truth. Loving in action. How do we see the world around us? Do we value what God values? And are we so focused on getting to where we're going in our road of life that we're missing divine opportunities that God is showing us? Are we so focused with my job, my career, my, my plans, my purpose, my finances, what I'm building in my life, what I'm doing, where I'm going, and what, what God has for me, that I forget to listen as I'm on my road. How many people do I pass by along my road that are crying out, God, save me. God, save me. You see, God has a little bit bigger neighborhood than we do. You know, the Samaritans, they live close to the Jews. They weren't socially recognized as neighbors. And this man wanted a boundary line for his love. Asking myself this week, Heath, how big is your neighborhood? Where do I draw the line in my life on love? Who, where, where do I put that place, that marker, where I, I don't feel concerned to act anymore? Where, where are there things that I want to deafen my ear to and say, well, you know, God, I've got these things. I've got to save up this much money for this. I've got to, got to do this in my life. I'm, I know I've got step one, step two, step three. This is where I'm trying to get. And yet I can see all these needs. We went to um, New Orleans this week. Uh, last week with uh, the staff, and uh, my first trip to New Orleans. I've been to major cities before, and around, you know, around the world, and been to Haiti. I've been to Kingston, Jamaica. I've, I've seen poverty. I've seen uh, prostitution. I've seen homelessness. Uh, I mean, where we pastored before this church, homeless people would come to my door every week. I, I know there's need, but this week was a good reminder as we went out. Uh, we went to McDonald's one morning, and here in our own state, there was a man coming into McDonald's with a walker, a very elderly man, rattered, dirty, in clothing, no shoes. No shoes. I thought that was odd. Downtown, on Canal Street, the main street in New Orleans, no shoes, blistered from here down, just dirty and blistered and bleeding. And it just stuck with me that whole week. God... Who am I? What, I, don't, I don't have anything to complain about. We went to, uh, we had to go to urgent care. We had a little accident and uh, nothing major. But as we stopped there, Beth and I were in the waiting room. And two young girls walk in. You could tell by their attire what their 
evening occupation was. But they couldn't have been more than 17. Maybe I would be surprised if they were 18 or 20. Young, and I'm thinking, where's your family? Where's your dad? Where's your mom? Out here on the street with all these uh, vile men. Lost. And, and, and their, their faces stuck with me. It wasn't their outfits, because any man would have to do, the, you know, focus your attention. But it wasn't all about that. It wasn't about what they were, what they were wearing, or what they were doing. But it was their faces that they were children. That's in our state. That's our neighborhood. I don't live in New Orleans. It's four hours away from here. I don't know them. I don't know that man with no shoes. I don't know these young little girls. But how big is my neighborhood? Is it my street? Is it my family? Is it just my church? How big is our neighborhood today, church? God has a very much bigger perspective. And his neighbor, definition of neighbor, has nothing to do with geography, citizenship, or race. And it's simply this. Wherever people need you, you're their neighbor. Isaiah 58 calls us to show and follow Christ, to free the oppressed, to feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, give clothes to the naked, help our relatives that are in need. And afterwards, he promises that he'll save us, he'll heal our wounds, he'll protect us, he'll shine through us, and he'll fill us with the Holy Spirit. Check out Isaiah 58. It's after we begin to minister to the lost, the broken, the dying, the helpless, the needy, those that are along the road of life, dying in the ditch, crying out, somebody save me. Isaiah says, when you do those things, like Jesus says, do this and you'll live. Isaiah 58 agrees. If you do those things, then God will heal your family. God will heal your life, your marriage. He will shine through you. He will give refreshing times when you go through your desert, and He will cleanse you and purify you and bless you. Instead of asking like this man, who is my neighbor? It's, maybe we should be asking, who could be my neighbor? Or like Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Won't you? Be my neighbor. Loving our neighbor. He came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, bound his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And he took out two days' wages of work, which would have been about two weeks' worth of room and board. How much do you make in a day? Times it by two. That's what he gave as an offering. Took out his time, stopped what he was doing. And it says he felt compassion. The Greek word there. It means inner bowels, the inner stomach. He, it was a deep movement of emotion when he saw this man. <clears throat> it's interesting that the religious people felt nothing. Why is that? You know, even animals can somewhat feel compassion and help another animal in need. Elephants help an elephant that's stuck. You know that? They'll get some elephant, they'll get it out. And here are the religious people walking by people. What does that say about us? What does that say about what we can do when we are so focused on serving God, it becomes serving us? Going to church, is it all about serving God, or is it really trying to make my life better? 
Is it really trying to get my blessing? Trying to do things, God, I want you to bless my future, my health, my family, my relationship. Or is it really instead about God? If you can use anything, Lord, use me. God, I'm here. I want to worship you. I give you everything. You see, God had said in Psalm 72, He'll deliver the needy when they cry for help, the afflicted, when they have no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy in the lives of the needy. He will save those who know they need a Savior. He will save. Those that know they're broken and they need healing, He will save. And that's what He's done for you and I. So if God has left His position, if God felt compassion for you when you repented and saved you, how much more should I feel compassion for the lost and broken of this world? Because who am I to withhold my acts, my love, my service from anyone For God so loved me that when I was dead in my transgressions, Jesus Christ raised me up and seated me with him. Man, who am I to write a boundary on who I'll love and who I'll serve? There's no boundaries with God. And he says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. You know, compassion may be a feeling, but love is a choice. And love is a choice to act. Sometimes I can't control. You know, you, uh, you watch these little commercials. Like, uh, they sing that song, Only in the Eyes of an Angel. And they have a puppy dog on there, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about? And uh, Shania Twain or somebody will come on and ask you for $10 a month for homeless animals. Okay? Some people might cry at that. Myself, I'm a little bit more, more harder. I'm thinking, put the dog down and move on. You know, save us some money, Right? Some of y'all are like, oh my gosh, no, you know. Uh, I can't really choose sometimes how I feel compassionate about something, right? But love is a choice. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is a choice to sacrifice for the benefit of somebody else. Let me put it in this way. Jesus chose to sacrifice his position for you, for not for his benefit, but for your benefit. And thank God he didn't stand up in heaven and just say, man, those people really need a Savior. Man, they have a horrible situation, right? He chose to act. He didn't just feel empathy towards someone. He chose to act, and it cost him something. Love is going to cost you and I something. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a passerby. And sometimes when we see those you know, a missions program, or we see an offering or a need, you know, sometimes it's so much easier for us just to put money in the plate and dilute the responsibility onto someone else. So much times it's easier just to come to church rather than serve. It's easier just to give money than actually to get involved. But Jesus is saying, your love is going to cost you something. Sometimes money doesn't cost us something. You know that? Sometimes money doesn't cost me something. Sometimes it's my time that costs me something. Sometimes it's my talent. Sometimes it's my prayer time. Sometimes it's my my responsibility. Sometimes it's the direction I'm going. Like this man who stopped the direction that he was going, took a sacrifice of his own. He was even willing to put the man on his donkey that he would walk and the man would ride. Cost him some some oil. It cost him some, uh, some wine. It cost him two days wages and then time to check in on him after it was given. What about that new believer that needs somebody to pour into their life and call them and say, how are you doing? What about that young person that says, man, I don't have a dad in my life. I don't have a mom in my life. I need somebody like that. 
It's going to cost us something, church, to love the city. It's going to cost us something to love this parish. It's going to cost us something to love people around the world. And how do we draw that line on love? How far are we willing to go? Because here's what the Bible says. That if, and I heard this quote this last week. It says that God will give more through you than he'll give more to you. You better believe if God finds a willing heart, it says, God, I'll go, send me. God, I'll give, give through me. That he will provide everything you need to meet the people who are broken and lost and dying in this world. If we are a willing heart and say, God, like a good neighbor, I want to be there for this lost and dying world. You got it, right? Like a good neighbor. Worship team, would you come back? How much of church is talk? And how much of church is action? Thank God that Jesus didn't stay in heaven, but he said he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He just didn't look at them. He didn't just walk on by, but he did something about it. As these guys, just be real quiet. I want you to focus on this. I want to tell you a little story. There was a pastor's conference in Indianapolis years and years ago, and, and D.L. Moody, a very famous pastor, was attending. And he asked the singer, Ira Sankey, a famous singer, to meet him at 6 o'clock one evening on a certain street corner. And when Mr. Sankey arrived, Mr. Moody put him on a box, and he asked him to sing. And it wasn't long before a crowd gathered on the streets of Indianapolis, Moody began to speak briefly, and he invited the crowd to follow him into a nearby opera house. Before long, the auditorium was filled, and the evangelist preached the gospel to the spiritually hungry people. But then the delegates, the pastors, the deacons, the churchgoers of the convention started to arrive a little bit later. Moody stopped preaching and said this, Now we must close as the brethren of the convention wish to come and discuss the question, How do we reach the masses? How much of church is talk? How much of church is action? Over the next coming weeks, those of you who are in a Bible study at our church, one of our small group Bible studies, you guys can play something soft, we'll begin to, we are going to start an initiative that every quarter, every Bible study will be doing something not for us, but for this community. We'll be doing service projects, evangelist projects, acts of random kindness, of compassion, of love. That'll be purposed. And so you'll be joining if that's part of your, if you're involved. I hope you will be. If you're not, get involved. But we're going to make a difference. Not just come to church. That's not what it's about. Not just about a talk. Not just about hearing a pastor sing or preach and a worship team sing. Where's our love? Loving our neighbors as ourselves. Seeing a need and meeting it. I believe there are people that you'll never, that I will never meet in your situation. You have different roads of life you're all going to go on. God's going to begin opening doors of need. He's going to ask you, how does the Bible read to you? Will you see a need and will you meet it? And will you trust God to be the provider for that need? You know, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough talent, resources, or gifts. But I have the Holy Spirit. And I have a Father in heaven who owns the universe. And he's looking for people with a heart of compassion and are willing to make the choice to sacrifice 
for a lost and dying world. Would you bow your heads? Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Father God, I pray, Lord, that as we still our hearts in this moment, nobody looking around, nobody getting 